This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. According to the CDC, a salmonella outbreak from cantaloupes has hospitalized dozens and killed two recently. So you might want to check your fridge or take cantaloupes off the office party menu. From the farm to our personal kitchens, bacteria and viruses from food like salmonella have the potential to cause some serious illness, especially for elders and those with weak immune systems. We're talking with health and food safety experts right after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The first woman Supreme Court justice has died. Sandra Day O'Connor died early Friday morning in Phoenix at the age of 93 due to complications related to advanced dementia and a respiratory illness. The 25th Navajo Nation Council and Speaker Crystalline Curley said in a statement, quote, It's important to acknowledge Sandra Day O'Connor's influence on the American justice system by being the first woman appointed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In Diné culture, we honor the symbiotic relationship that exists between men and women, end quote. O'Connor was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan and unanimously confirmed by the Senate. She served on the court for 25 years. Prior to her tenure in the Supreme Court, she was a judge and an elected official in Arizona, serving as the first female majority leader of a state Senate as the Republican leader in the Arizona Senate. She was honored in 2009 with the Presidential Medal of Freedom for helping transform the American judiciary by paving the way for women to join the nation's highest court. She was often referred to as the most powerful woman in America. The 25th Navajo Nation Council sends their condolences to the family of Sandra Day O'Connor. The virtual conference to discuss issues facing the Columbia River was held last week online that brought together Native tribes and interested parties. Steve Jackson tells us about the Transboundary Water Governance and Ethics Symposium. Participants in the virtual conference addressed issues like climate change, the effect of the dams on endangered salmon, and water quality. One who spoke was D.R. Michelle, Colville tribal member and spokesman for the Upper Columbia United Tribes, who spoke of tribal efforts to reintroduce native salmon above major dams like Chief Joseph Dam, where they haven't existed for 80 years. Early on in some of these studies, when we talked about doing cultural and educational releases, folks would say, oh, those fish aren't going to know what to do or how to, you know, they've been out of those waters so long, they're not going to remember. And, and that first bass of fish we, we turned loose above Chief Joe went straight up the river, went, went heading for home, heading for the, heading for the, uh, the headwaters where for thousands of years they, they've been. And after everything we've done to them, they've still got that instinct, that desire to get to those, those spawning grounds. The conference was billed as a continuation of a dialogue that began before the COVID pandemic. It was organized to discuss serious issues that threaten the well-being of the river system issues that weren't addressed when the Columbia River Treaty between the U.S. and Canada was signed in 1964. Negotiations are underway now behind closed doors to renew the treaty, which originally addressed flood control and hydropower management. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. The rate of suicides involving a firearm are increasing nationwide, according to a new report. 
Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports Indigenous people are seeing the largest increase. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there were about 27,000 suicides involving a firearm nationwide in 2022. That's according to preliminary data. The rate of suicide by firearm increased by 11 percent from 2019 through 2022. Rates increased among all racial groups, but Indigenous Americans saw the largest increase at 66 percent. The CDC says that could be attributed to lack of access to mental health care, high unemployment rates, and isolation in Indigenous communities, all issues exacerbated by the pandemic. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce. It's that time of year when we gather around the table to share a holiday dinner with family and friends. We might also be gathering for um, celebrations like uh, winter and cultural, winter cultural and ceremonial events. Either way, food is going to be a big part of many of our Native gatherings. But nothing puts a damper on a feast like food poisoning. Do you remember that horrible time you had food poisoning? I do. Chills, fever, and multiple panic trips to the bathroom. Viruses and bacteria spread by contaminated food not only cause unpleasant gastrointestinal issues, foodborne illness can also be life-threatening for elders and those with weak immune systems. Just recently, two people died from a salmonella outbreak and dozens more were hospitalized. To stave off foodborne illness, home cooks must remember some simple but important food safety rules. We'll go over those and talk with food safety and medical experts about food safety practices today. You can join us with your questions or comments. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from the Indian Health Service headquarters in Rockville, Maryland, is Stephen Pointkowski. He's the Senior Environmental Health Officer in the Division of Environmental Health Services at the Office of Environmental Health and Engineering at the IHS Services. Uh, welcome to Native America Calling, Stephen. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here with all of you and your listeners. 
Joining us from Libertyville in Illinois is Patricia Sullivan. She's the advanced practice nurse consultant in the Division of Nursing Services at the Indian Health Service. Welcome to Native America Calling, Patricia. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. Well, foodborne illness, I know there's a lot of different illnesses, different uh, viruses and um, uh, uh, bacteria that can be considered as um, uh, causing uh, illness. But uh, I mentioned salmonella uh, in, in the intro just right there. Uh, let's start with that. That seems to be one that is most um, uh, known uh, in among all the other uh, illnesses out there. Um, uh, what is salmonella in the first place? And how does it uh, start causing uh, wreaking havoc in our uh, in our bodies? Sure. So um, basically, salmonella is a bacteria uh, that we um, sometimes you know, will be it'll be on food, and so the interesting thing about salmonella is it's actually a very common foodborne illness, but we tend to hear it more in media when it has um, more serious strains impacting. Um, and, and as you had said earlier, um, there's been some deaths related to it. So, a couple things to know. Um, basically, what happens is when we ingest something that has salmonella on it, and Steve's going to talk a little bit more about safety and how to prevention is kind of the key. But what happens when we ingest, um, just like any type of bacteria, virus, uh, our body initially will try to attack it and get rid of that. At the same time, our body is recognizing that this is something that should not be there, and the infection is, you know, really attacking our body. So it's kind of a two-way system. Um, so even though it's a foodborne illness, it's just like any other bacteria or virus, where our our body knows that this is wrong. And it's because this, uh, you know, infection that's not supposed to be there is invading our body. It is a very common foodborne illness, and it is typically very mild. And so it's kind of self-limited. So we can, our body kind of over a few days fights it off, and then it goes away. Uh, of course, the symptoms, even mild cases, um, as you said, everyone kind of remembers when they've had a, a food poisoning. Um, it's diarrhea, stomach cramping. You're going to feel like you have to throw up, so you might feel nauseous or you may vomit. Um, typically, diarrhea and vomiting or throwing up are the most common things that will occur. And, of course, it makes you feel you know, bad, and you may feel very tired, even weak. Um, you might have some fever and chills. And occasionally, when it gets more serious, um, you could even have confusion. So the most important thing to know is, is really, um, you know, why are we having those symptoms? You know, when is it important to, to uh, seek help, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but the, the more serious infections or strains um, can, or if our body has not properly attacked even more, um, more you know, mild strains because of uh, other things like a uh, lower immune system, um, that infection can take over. So that's like kind of when our body has failed to do its job. And those are typically going to be when the infection strains are more serious, like what we're seeing in the media now. Um, and so in that case, um, you know, our body just hasn't been able to take care of that issue. And then, um, you know, the symptoms get more serious and, 
you know, I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but, you know, typically at that point we need help uh, to take care of the problem, and that's usually uh, going to an urgent care or seeking hospital treatment for that. Right, right. Uh, I want to go over to uh, Stephen. Um, Stephen, uh, uh, salmonella, uh, that, that's something that uh, has uh, contaminated cantaloupe uh, right now, according to the FDA and the CDC. Um, is this something that uh, the IHS, specifically your uh, division, keeps track of? So most of the foodborne illness outbreaks are investigated by the Food and Drug Administration and supported by Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, they're the ones, the agencies charged to do that. Uh, we have about 72% of our federal staff located at district and field offices across Indian country, and they do have the ability to track and monitor those recalls and outbreaks that are led by the Food and Drug Administration. So it's, it's um, our staff in the field. Uh, they do coordinate with any implicated food service establishments or at-risk populations that they work with and notify them as needed okay. of the existing food recalls or outbreaks. Yeah, and um, for, uh, for these... Um foods, you know, you, you mentioned they're investigated by the FDA, um, but typically, you know, w when there's a large recall, um, I mean, they're, they're talking about uh, cantaloupes that have been shipped all over the country. So they're, you know, looking at the whole um, really big food system that we have here. Typically, where do uh, foodborne illnesses start? Is it, you know, at the farm or at, uh, you know, the distribution network? Like, where can um, foods be contaminated? Well, maybe this is a question for Patricia on where they start, but there's several factors involved that, that influence um, a foodborne illness outbreak. And uh, they're, they're kind of summarized as uh, the people uh, are, are a cause, the equipment, the economics of that food system that you uh, referred to, as, as well as the processes and the food themselves. Um, so really those root causes of foodborne out outbreaks um, need to be uh, addressed and there's certain interventions that can be done uh, both at a, a food system level as well as the local level. And with our staff, they're in touch and have partnerships with all of their constituents and partners at the local level. Uh, to do what needs to get done uh, within the communities. Okay. Uh, Patricia, did you uh, want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's often multifactorial, and when there's an investigation done, you know, usually it's, it's pretty expensive to trace it back to the original source. So it may be um, a farm that then that got to the factory, and it got sent out, um, but then you may have actual um, communicable situation where people are ingesting and then potentially spreading. Um, and so, you know, usually these are things that often come from um, like feces, so it could be on vegetables, uh, could be on the meat from the um, butchering, just, you know, didn't get cleaned up enough. Um, so, you know, when we talk about prevention, a lot of it is, you know, good hand washing and 
cleaning, <laughs> washing everything, um, just to be sure, you know, even though there's so much in that process, because we know that, you know, it can start in the field and just keep going um, if it's not, things are not properly, um, you know, cleaned off um, because of the way, um, you know, it, it transfers, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and we're going to go to a break in just a little bit, but um, do uh, bacteria and viruses, do they uh, affect the body differently when they, when they come from food? Um, so when we're talking about uh, the foodborne illness, because it, it, as it comes into our GI tract and our GI tract, it attacks that. That's where our, our symptoms are coming from in that area. So there's specific uh, things that are associated with food. We ingest it, it attacks our GI lining, and you know some of the symptoms are also based on our immune response. Um, so that's why they're classified in that manner, Got because it. they cause those symptoms, and it has to do with ingestion and, and coming through that GI tract. Okay. All right, we are talking about food safety and food safety practices today on Native America Calling. If you have a comment or question, you are welcome to join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Did you learn the hard way? about fully cooking your food or handling food in a safe way, give us a call. Again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Native shows like Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs and Native stand-up comedians like Brian Bahi, who was named a comedian to know in 2023 by the news site Vulture, are putting Native comedy in the mainstream. We'll talk with some young Native comedians making waves on the next Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're talking about food safety today, and you're welcome to join us. Did you learn the hard way about cooking and the importance of storing food and cooking safely? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. We have a couple of experts on with us. You can ask them a question about food safety as well. We're also at 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, joining us now is uh, Patricia Sullivan. She's the Advanced Practice Nurse Consultant in the Division of Nursing Services at the IHS. We also have Stephen Pointkowski. He's the Senior Environmental Health Officer over at the Division of Environmental Health Services at the Office of Environmental Health and Engineering, also at the IHS. Uh, so, Stephen, um, we're talking about... Um, 
with, you know, just just before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, how the body responds to uh, contamination. So let's move on to uh, prevention and um, food safety practices. Uh, what are some of the really basic rules um, or, or, yeah, rules for uh, practicing food safety? That's a great question, Andy, and it really comes down to um, uh, four steps. Um, I summarize them as wash, rinse, and sanitize all lip and food contact surfaces. Folks need to wash their hands frequently and properly, and in the food business, that's usually about 20 seconds. And they need to keep food out of that uh, food temperature danger zone that some of the the food handlers might be familiar with that are um, listening in. That's basically keep hot foods hot and cold foods cold. And finally, you know, folks, if they're sick, they should not be involved in the preparation of food. Mm -hmm. Um, Going on to uh, earlier in the conversation about uh, how foodborne illnesses begin, uh, one common way is is that people, and uh, frequently people are involved in the preparation of food when they already have an illness, Uh, one that folks might be familiar with uh, that happens frequently is norovirus, and and that usually is occurring because someone was involved in the food flow or involved in the preparation of the food uh, because they had symptoms. Okay. All right. Um, Patricia, uh, what is uh, norovirus? Uh, How how does it, um, uh, I guess, behave in the body? Sure. So norovirus um, is is definitely um, one of the viruses that we hear uh, fairly commonly. Um, It is very contagious. And so having someone, having contact with someone who has it, um, you know, sharing food or eating utensils um, and, you know, even uh, food handling that has that on there. pretty much anything that's contaminated with it, you can get it. Um, so those prevention perspectives of, you know, good hand washing and um, trying to keep distance from those who have the uh, potential symptoms is really kind of the main thing. So just like what we talked about with salmonella, you know, really it's the either ingestion of something or um, touching someone who might have the virus on them. So it's basically that contact um, that, uh, really is what produces the symptoms in our own. Um, so good hand washing is the key because we may touch something that we then, you know, touch our mouths or whatever, and that's that's pretty much what happens. So whether it's on the person or on the utensils or um, in the food themselves itself, uh, that's really, you know, all those things are the good hand washing is, is really the, the kind of like that last uh, defense. Um, you know, you can wash everything, you can cook things really well, um, but it's always that good hand washing too that can make a big difference. Got it. We have a caller on the line right now, uh, Laura in Corrales, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. Hey, Laura. Hey. Thank you so much for doing this show. I hope I, I hope you can hear me properly. Uh, yeah. The question I'm curious about, especially having to some experts here, is so we're talking about ways to prevent it, but what happens when you've gotten it? And and because I've heard in some of these and, and personal experience in some of these, some more sort of disturbing long-term effects. So I'm curious about what are ways that once you've already been contaminated and, and are dealing with it, and there are long-term effects, what are some ways that you can mitigate? Um, the damage of that. 
Okay. All right. Let's go to Stephen first. Uh, Stephen, uh, prevention? Well, the prevention we, we kind of touched on, and, and I'll echo what, what Patricia has said, that that hand-washing is, is very important. Uh, once you become sick and are treating that, um, that's maybe one way I need to pass it over to Patricia and, and uh, how to manage that in the, both in the short term and the long term when folks are sick. Right. Uh, Patricia, I didn't know that uh, there were um, long-term uh, effects uh, w- considering foodborne illness. Yeah, no, I, I actually think that's a really great question to come up because I know a lot of things we're looking at is, you know, how to manage that in the acute environment and, you know, when when things are more serious and what happens, you know, for treatment in the acute environment. But the things that we would look at for long-term are pretty much things that have impacted our bodies um, from, you know, the more serious sequelae of an infection. So just like any bacteria or virus, um, not just with foodborne illness, a lot of times, you know, you hear a lot about long COVID and they're still kind of figuring that out. But that's something that can happen anytime our body's impacted by a virus, bacteria, um, and it tends to be when the um you know, it, it's gone further than what our immune system was comfortable with fighting. Sometimes it has to do with the actual uh, level of immune response. So not sure if there's specific things, but the things I can think of that, you know, we're usually helping patients through are sometimes you'll get um, uh, patients that will develop an arthritis, uh, joint complications. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear about, uh, this is not foodborne necessarily, but again, very similar to what can happen post any type of infection, um, you know, like strep throat sometimes will produce a um, what they call a, some, a type of psoriasis, for example, that the individual, um, you know, will need to be treated for for a while. So with the foodborne, uh, we definitely see sometimes robust immune, um, and sometimes people will have joint issues. Um, you may have, uh, we're going to talk about E. coli in a little bit, but uh, there may be damage to the kidneys. Um, so depending on what that what happens with that, Sometimes we're able to get people out of that. Sometimes they're going to have long-term issues because of that. Um, you may have a real serious issue with the GI tract, um, you know, long-term inflammation. Um, you know, if the person had to be in the ICU, there could be other things that are happening. And a lot of that has to do with something that's impacted our body in, in a more major way. Um, and it really, you know, a lot of that is individualized with patients and what they're experiencing, symptom management trying to maximize on their quality of life and certainly um, adding any interventions that we can. Um, you know, some things can be cured. Other things are, are actually just chronic management of pain management, mobility, um, you know, ensuring people have uh, proper follow-up, that type of thing. Okay. And how long after you get sick um, can you start, uh, I guess, behaving normally, you know, um, uh, being close to other people and, you know, start uh, maybe cooking for other people? Yeah, I mean, it really is so dependent on which illness you have, but we kind of have some general principles. So typically, certainly when someone has active symptoms, um, and these usually resolve within three to seven days. You know, sometimes you hear like 24-hour flu, but, um, you know, a lot of times people are, are better within three days. Sometimes it can take seven. Um, but some of the viruses can even shut up to a couple weeks. So for sure, when you have active symptoms, um, you know, you want to 
try to stay away from others, good hand washing, all of that. Um, but you just need to be very mindful that um, sometimes we see shedding for longer. Uh, some of the uh, foodborne illnesses and other types of viruses can, um, you know, I've, I've seen things that, you know, they've, when they do testing, they can isolate in the stool still like, you know, quite some time after those two weeks. But the chances of it being an, an issue are much less as we move away from active symptoms. And truly the most important thing at that point when you don't have those symptoms is, is good hand washing, washing surfaces down um, to avoid that communicable aspect. Okay. And uh, Stephen, a while ago, you mentioned the danger zone. Um, are there any uh, temperatures you can give us? Yeah. So the, the food temperature danger zone in the food code is, is listed as 41 degrees Fahrenheit to 135 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's basically a temperature range where germs can grow very rapidly. And so there's recommendations on certain temperatures that specific foods should be cooked at. And, and so uh, things like uh, fish, pork, and steaks should be cooked to an internal temperature of about 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. uh, ground meat, sausages, mixed meat, and eggs should be cooked to 155 degrees Fahrenheit. And poultry uh, and he reheating leftovers should be heated, or excuse me, cooked to 165 degrees Fahrenheit. And all those should be cooked at those temperatures for about uh, at least 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody really knows the internal temperature of a food unless you use a food thermometer. So we highly encourage people both at work and at home when you're cooking food to make sure that you're cooking, uh, that you're using a food temperature a uh, food thermometer to measure the temperature of the food and ensuring it comes to the right temperature because that will kill all those germs we've been talking about this hour and or many of them at least and reduce your risk of the foodborne illness. Right. Uh, would you recommend a, a digital or a, a, I guess a manual food temperature thermometer? Uh, it doesn't matter. Whatever folks' preferences. And these are typically available, the thermometers, at a hardware store um, and sometimes a, a, a kitchen store of some kind uh, may have them, but they're they're readily available. Yeah, I've seen them at uh, most grocery stores as well. Um, and uh, Stephen, what foods are most uh, susceptible to carrying foodborne illnesses? Uh, well, that that varies, you know. And over the past several years, it's really changed. Maybe the past ten to twenty years, where we typically um, talked about potentially hazardous foods being meat, fish, poultry, and dairy. Uh, but in the past 10 years or so, we've added uh, uh, plant-based foods like sliced tomatoes or melons, uh, going to that cantaloupe outbreak you just mentioned, as well as torn or cut leafy greens. Uh, those have been uh, in, <clears throat> involved in a lot more foodborne illness outbreaks in recent times. And the prevention with those is to uh, basically wash them with uh, cool running water. Okay. Uh, so it sounds like the more people handle it, the more um, it, it uh, has the opportunity to bring on some of these viruses. Is that right? Like uh, you mentioned sliced tomatoes. You know, they have that extra step of being sliced, uh, you know, prepackaged um, uh, like salads and stuff like that. Yeah, and we went back, uh, going back to a few moments ago, we talked about the root causes of foodborne 
outbreaks, and people is one of those. And, mm-hmm. and so that goes to the point you're making. And and yes, with with the the plant-based foods or the sliced tomatoes and melons and torn leafy greens and so forth, um, uh, frequently the the person or the food handler is the one that is inserting that comet contamination to it uh, from the environment. So, uh, but there's no uh, special prevention of that. Is is a good rinsing with cold running water will will do the trick. Okay. We have a question from uh, a, a person uh, who didn't want to come on air, but they are uh, somewhat wary of leafy greens. Should we be concerned at all about uh, leafy greens? Well, that is now one of those potentially hazardous foods. And uh, again, just rinse it with cold running water uh, before you serve them uh, is, is the recommendation to give. Okay. All right. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a restaurant that uh, was uh, that had uh, pork chops on the menu. And this was the first time um, because I don't um, usually eat uh, pork chops. uh, But uh, this was the first time I heard the waitress ask me, um, how do you want that cooked? And uh, I, I was you know, I didn't know what to say. I mean, I thought the rule was it had to be, you know, 145 degrees or, uh, you know, just fully cooked, well done. But I asked her, like, what does um, what does the chef, what do you recommend? Uh, what does the chef recommend? And the, they made it for me um, like a medium, medium well. Um, and I was kind of uh, a little bit scared to <laughs> to get into this pork chop. Uh, you know, it was a little bit more tender than um, uh, a well-done um, pork chop. But um, is that something that uh, is maybe an exception? Or should we still be cooking, um, especially pork, like just well done all the time? I, too, have never encountered how you'd like your, your pork cooked. Yeah. Um, but but you're absolutely correct that, uh, again, from a food safety perspective, uh, it needs to be cooked to an internal temperature of 145 degrees for 15 seconds. Uh, that is what's going to make it safe. You know, folks might recognize on some of their menus there is a warning about cooking, excuse me, consuming undercooked uh, food and that it could cause sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so some of the restaurants do have that warning on their menus. And uh, basically, uh, Andy, I, I would have went with the uh, the fully cooked 145. <laughs> All right. All right. Next time I tell them, I'll, I'll tell them 145 degrees, please, for 15 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> um, uh, do we typically see an uptick in foodborne illness during the holidays? Maybe this is a, um, a question for Patricia. Uh, Patricia? You know, I, I'm not going to lie, I don't have that exact data. I mean, mm. I guess just from being a clinician, um, I would say, you know, um, you know, locally, you definitely see people coming in um, at different times of the year that you can isolate. But I, I can't quote, like, the studies of that. that I have to say just from my own clinical practice, I would say yes. Um, so, you know, you have food gatherings. Um, we also have certain times of the year where, you know, kids might, be gathering, um, you know, so I think uh, it it makes sense that it would be, um, you know, based on uh, people coming together. Um, but there's also, you know, like we talked about, some of these bigger outbreaks are happening. 
um, based on an incident and then, you know, they're tracking and it spread. So kind of both, but as far as the optique, I, I actually don't know the exact data as to whether it, it makes sense that it would be though. Okay. All right, Stephen, um, now's the time folks are hosting uh, office parties, holiday parties, um, potlucks, and we're uh, getting into uh, this break in just a minute. But I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, suggestions and more food safety practices when maybe we signed up to bring the fruit salad or we signed up to bring some uh, a part of a main dish. Uh, We'll be back after this break. We'll um, get those questions answered. We're talking about food safety today. You can join us with your questions or comments. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients, and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Thank you for tuning in. This is Need of America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce. We're focusing on food safety today because it's that time of year for gathering around the dinner table and sharing food. Are you sure your dish isn't contaminated with viruses and bacteria? We'll continue with our food safety experts right now, and you're welcome to join or ask them a question. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Stephen, we are going to be having office potlucks and family dinners and get-togethers. And uh, maybe we've signed up to bring a salad, a side dish, a main dish. Um, Are there any other... um, food safety protocols we should remember when we are uh, bringing food to a bigger community, bigger than uh, your family at home? There are, Andy, and I'll go back to uh, kind of the four main tips I mentioned earlier about clean, separate, cook, and chill, also not being involved with food if you're if you're sick, and um, we'll, we'll keep um, banging this drum about how important hand washing is and and for food handlers, you know, they should be washing their hands before they're working with the food, after they're using the restroom, after eating, drinking, sneezing or coughing. They should be washing their hands if they're handling any dirty dishes or money. Um, uh, if, if they're switching between, like, raw or, or foods that are ready to be consumed, they should be washing their hands between those tasks. Uh, some people think that wearing gloves is an intervention and replaces hand washing, and it does not. In fact, folks should be washing their hands even more if they decide to wear gloves when preparing food, and they should be changing their gloves between each of those tasks, switching between types of food, Um, and they should be washing their hands before uh, they put their gloves on and when they take their gloves off. Uh, so, so that hand hygiene is is really, really important. Uh, We'll go back to that, uh, their health, that if they're um, sick or have symptoms, especially uh, maybe fever with a sore throat 
or vomiting, a little diarrhea or jaundice, they should not be involved in the food flow or in that uh, process. Mm-hmm. Um, some other some other details is keeping that food out of the food temperature danger zone as, as often as possible. Uh, the rule of thumb for most consumers in the public is is if the food if the food temperature is between 41 and 135 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, that's about the maximum amount of time. So if folks are going to those mass gatherings or big parties, they should keep that in mind when they're transporting their food. Um, put it in a cooler with ice. Uh, Keep it hot. Um, maybe there's a, a way to, to keep the food on the burners or, or something at, at your uh, your host site. Um, maybe not even using hot foods or or potentially hazardous food in in your in your recipes and trying to do some some things different. Um, so all these are, are kind of um, some some other little tips they could use while they're uh, enjoying the holidays with friends and family. Okay. All right, we have a, a caller on the line, uh, Bo in Santa Fe, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. Go ahead, Bo. Thank you. Um, I'm a vegan, and I have thought that I was pretty insulated, therefore, from some of these food issues. Um, so I'm, I appreciate the information. But I'm wondering, there are some boxes of mixed greens and so on that say uh, pre-washed, ready for use. Should we trust that or not? All right, Stephen. Uh, that's up to you. You can trust that, um, but it's always safest if you wash it yourself. All right. All right. And what if, um, you, you know, I, I've uh, seen uh, a little, you know, insect or two, a gnat, a little teeny tiny worm. Uh, should we just throw out the whole uh, package? Should we return that dish to the kitchen when we see these little tiny, um, little tiny bugs? Like, you know, sometimes, you know, I can I can tell, you know, it's easy to miss these because they're way in between, like, say, a celery bunch uh uh or you know just way at the uh, at the bottom almost by the um vein of a cabbage or something like that um uh steven should we just toss the whole thing out or are bugs something that uh, we should worry about or is it just extra protein that really does depend on the situation you know i'll throw out another one people might be familiar with was is opening a loaf of bread and seeing some mold on bread you know do we throw mm-hmm. out the whole loaf or, or just the, the pieces that have the visible mold on them. Uh, same, same kind of example applies to cheese. Um, the, the safest thing is not to consume it at all. Um, so you can always default to that. Uh, other folks say, no, you can, other food safety folks say, you can cut off the, the moldy portion of the cheese and eat the rest. And others say, no, you can't because it's, uh, that mold has been in the package and those mold spores are spreading throughout the cheese. So the safest thing to do is is to discard it. Uh, with respect to your examples with um, bugs or insects on the produce, you know, produce is grown outdoors for the most part and is exposed to soils and uh, bugs as well as uh, p- potential, you know, chemicals, right? If it's um, pesticides and herbicides that are used in agriculture, um, and it goes back to that recommendation we met, uh, made a few moments ago okay. to wash and rinse your food in that cold running water. Uh, Patricia, uh, uh, can we catch any kind of uh, illness from little teeny tiny bugs we might find in uh, a salad? 
Yeah, I mean, just like anything, there could be, you know, bacteria. Um, they could be harboring virus. Um, you know, so I, you know, obviously choosing to to try to avoid that is is ideal. Um, the other thing, you know, we need to think about too is like that load. So, you know, if there's a lot, um, that's a little bit different than if there's like a little piece you could cut off. Um, we don't know if that bug, you know, has been all over the food and it hasn't been washed. So there's just a lot, it, like uh, like Stephen said, it kind of has depends on the scenario. If it's in your custody, you see it, you take it off and you can wash everything, it's probably fine, but you just don't know if it's coming from, you know, like the restaurant. Um, also some, we talked about a little bit earlier, some people have higher risk than others. So uh, young children, elderly, people with immune, uh, lower immune systems are gonna be higher risk, uh, even to like a lower load. So if you have a lot of bacteria, a lot of, um, you know, obvious fungus, that type of thing, versus a little, someone who has a lower immune system might still have a harder time with um, the lower amount. So I do think best practices, if you can, um, just to try to avoid it, but um, you know, a lot of it just depends on like what you know about the food that you have here in front of you. Okay. Uh, looking up, uh, you know, foodborne illness, um, it, it's caught and it's mentioned in a couple of different places. Um, it's caused by viruses, bacteria, and parasites. Um, uh, Patricia, uh, what, uh, what kind of parasites can um, be transferred via food? I am not as familiar with specifics on parasites, just that they, you know, they definitely can be a little bit more serious um, from the treatment perspective. Um, so there is a bunch and, um, you know, they tend to be very similar as far as, you know, how do you get it and what occurs, um, but they can be a little bit tougher actually to treat. Um, you know, these are things that will cause um, again, similar symptoms and caused by the same type of thing. So uh, undercooked food and not washing. Um, there's a, a bunch of different types of parasites. I kind of think of a name of one that's more familiar to people. Um, they tend to not be, uh, maybe Stephen might have one that he can think of, like, you know, Salmonella, E. coli, um, you know, when we talk about other things like hepatitis A, you know, there are, I, I can't think of a, a parasite in specific that people would say, oh yeah, that one. Okay. Uh, but again, very similar situation where you um, will have similar symptoms uh, and uh, similar, um, I guess, causes, uh, you know, things that you would do to prevent that. Okay. Um, uh, Stephen, do you know of a, a parasite uh, that is uh, transferred through food? You know, the, the parasites causing foodborne outbreaks is pretty rare. Uh, from 2009, uh, 2017 and 19, it only accounted for almost 2.5% of the outbreaks um, across the U.S. Uh, there's different um, um, organisms, really none that most folks will be familiar with. Uh, Giardia is a type, that, but that's typically from water and not necessarily solid food like we're having in this discussion and and alongside of that is different types of cryptosporidiums um, I don't know the details of those outbreaks whether or not that was from contaminated water but these are 
are parasites or germs that are usually associated with waterborne outbreaks. Okay. All right. And um, Patricia, when should somebody go to the hospital? I mean, how, how bad does it have to get um, for you know, someone to go over to the ER? Sure. Um, so I guess first I'd, I would probably, you know, talk about, you know, that that most are going to be mild and self-limited. So, you know, it lasts a few days at home. You don't feel well. Um, you might have vomiting, diarrhea, losing some fluids that way. But usually you can get fluids in and um, it resolves on its own, no problem. But occasionally um, these symptoms, either because your body was not able to fight that off because of the, the strain that you have or your body's immune system is low and is just not able to do um, the job that it needs to. And so those symptoms that we'll see is that it's, it's not improving. Um, and there's some things that would say, I really need to either call and get a remote assessment or I need to get into the urgent care or the ER. Um, a couple of things that are kind of red flags is bloody diarrhea. And that could be red blood, it could be maroon or dark, um, like black diarrhea. Typically, you're going to see red blood. Um, and the other piece is if that diarrhea persists for greater than three days and maybe even gets worse. Um, so you don't see it starting to slow down. Fever. So when someone has a temp, um, usually over 102, or it persists beyond like, you know, 48 hours, um, that's you know, a sign that things are a little bit more um, intense after a 48-hour window. Um, throwing up or vomiting is something that happens, but if you're not able to keep any liquids down, um, and that's usually, you know, you can become dehydrated and have a sequelae of, of dehydration fairly quickly, uh, depending on, you know, again, your health status, um, you know, how, your age, your immune system, um, that's going to potentially get you to the urgent care ER sooner. Um, and then things like things that uh, are signs that you are dehydrated and need to get in for fluids, especially if you're not able to get fluids in yourself. Um, when you stop urinating or reduced, so peeing, you know, when you're 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 not peeing, or um, the pee is, you know, you're you're not going often. When you go, it's more concentrated, so it might be darker, or there might even be a, a smell to it. Um, you know, that's a sign that there's dehydration. And if you're not able to kind of catch up with oral hydration, um, you know, that you might need some fluids. Um, if your throat and mouth are dry, um, if you feel dizzy, those are all signs that um, this illness has impacted your body too much. And, you know, I um, would say, you know, the two things that we're, we're concerned about is, Electrolyte imbalance, which is like, you know, when you're dehydrated, you lose all those fluids. You also lose electrolytes like salt and potassium. That can actually be very um, serious on your body. And, you know, you're, again, depending on your um, baseline, um, you know, you may be able to recover from that quickly on your own if it's, if it's you know, this lasts a day or two and then you're able to hydrate. Um, but also, again, that infection could be that it's, your, your immune system has not been able to fight it enough, and now the infection's taking over. It could be in the blood, and that becomes much more serious. Um, so that's when you want to go to the hospital and get evaluated. Um, did you want me to touch on, like, what would happen if you went in? Yeah, yeah, that was my next question. Okay, so, like, basically what happens is, and again, um, 
you know, if you're in a remote location, I always recommend if like it might be difficult to get somewhere, I usually recommend that you call, talk to the healthcare provider about what's going on so that they can give you guidance and actually um, kind of outline when they would want you to come in. Um, you know, if you have this, this, or this, you should come in. They can also do a remote evaluation of what's happening. And, and I think that's the most important thing is if you're not in a close uh, per perimeter to, to healthcare, you know, that distance or transportation could be an issue. And so we may want to see you sooner anyway, just to be sure everything's okay. Um, but truthfully, when you get to the hospital, let's say you go to the urgent care ER, um, or you need to be admitted, um, there's a few things that happen. Usually we're gonna draw some blood uh, to check your electrolyte and, and status of, of hydration. So there's some things that we look at in the labs that tell us what, what, what things look like. We're often just gonna go ahead and put an IV in and give some fluids through the IV that have sodium replacement and probably some potassium as well. Um, and that's gonna probably make you feel a lot better right away. Sometimes the um, feeling of feeling tired and, and weak uh, sometimes a bag of fluids will make all the difference. Um, we're going to usually send a stool sample uh, to check and confirm what exactly is causing this problem. A lot of times we can tell based on when you got it and, and various histor you know, history questions as to what's causing it. And at that point, we're probably going to do some treatment that, we, that is focused on what we think is the cause until we get a confirmatory. Um, if there is a known outbreak of something and it kind of fits that uh, line of um, symptoms, we're probably going to start you on something like an antibiotic that would treat that. Um, so that's, that's kind of the main thing is just really addressing those symptoms. And certainly if there's more serious things, you know, there's other interventions, but monitoring vital signs, that type of thing. And it, it, the main thing is usually getting hydration in and sometimes antibiotics uh, to treat the infection uh, based on what we think until we can get the confirmation of what is actually causing the problem. All right. All right, that is um, all the time we have for our show today. Um, folks sh should just remember, I guess, uh, to keep hot foods hot, cold foods cold, and that danger zone is 41 degrees to 130 degrees. That's where you want to keep your foods out of. Um, I want to say thank you to our guests today, uh, Stephen Poinkowski and Patricia Sullivan. Join us tomorrow as we talk with Native comedians helping put Native humor in the mainstream. I'm Andy Murphy. Fry bread. That's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Healthcare.gov slash coverage. Game Aganoj, 1 800 318 Gaundin the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation 
a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.